uh, May the 4th, and we're not going to make a single joke about it. Uh, it's uh, the first podcast of May. I think I got that right. It's the PFF forecast. We've got Bruce Radkowski coming on today. It's going to be fun. He's promised to bring some good stories. Uh, he played with Andy Dalton, so that'll be interesting. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this QB class because he's spent a bunch of time studying them. Um, he's our like chief uh, quarterback grade guru, uh, a la what Zach Robinson was. So that'll be a lot of fun. Um, and we're going to do a few things, talk a few things uh, for that. Um, so, yeah, let's rock. Eric, how you doing, brother? I'm good. I'm a little tired. Uh, yeah. Work, worked most of yesterday. You were up uh, late. No, you were up late watching I was up late dance. watching. I, I go for these walks now, but now, you know, obviously you can watch stuff on your phone. So I, I'm like like crazy person that's walking down the street watching something on his phone. Oh, that's reassuring. You're not going to get hit by a car, thankfully, because there are none on the road did you watch you watched the last dance though last night yeah yeah i caught up this week it was pretty good i didn't realize that jordan i knew he had a gambling problem but i didn't realize it was sort of when uh he was uh you know when he was playing and then the the whole like you know his retirement was really like a cover-up sort of thing i didn't realize that so I couldn't believe that you hadn't heard about this conspiracy theory. I'm, I would be very interested. I followed basketball pretty closely growing up. So like, to me, this was just a part of the Jordan narrative. It was one that I didn't, even at a young age, having read a bunch of articles on it, didn't feel like it carried that much. Um, like I felt like something would have come out more, more um, I don't know what the right word is, more sinful about what he'd done if that were actually the case. But I didn't think that anyone had gone this far without knowing that conspiracy theory. So it shocked me that you, that you didn't know that. Do you believe it? Uh, no. Most conspiracy, conspiracy theories are dumb, right? Yep. So, like, um, at this point, the, the funny thing was, wasn't it one of his biographers, like, went into the interview process thinking it was true? Mm-hmm. And came out saying it was ridiculous. Like, he was just exhausted, which I think if you win three consecutive titles, you're allowed to be exhausted. Um, there's the, the there's fact no that, one that's come close to that that level of famousness from a sporting perspective. Famousness, yes. I would say, from an exhaustion standpoint, the late Kobe Bryant probably rivaled him in the when they had the three consecutive titles – with the Lakers because, you know, I I was going to say the rape, the rape case that to me was as fine a microscope as I think anyone has had. Yeah. But the, the, the issue with Jordan was he allowed himself to have demons, right? You know, the gambling thing is mostly self-inflicted the hating literally every player that he came across, right. was mostly (laughs) self-inflicted Kobe Right. I mean, like, yes, I and we all have this. I mean, we all are driven crazy by people who live, you know, who, who we shouldn't. Right. Um, but a lot of that was self-inflicted. And so he's just exhausted from everything. Right. Not only winning three titles, but also um, also uh, having uh, basically like, you know, the, 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 the demons, you know, with, with Kobe, it was he hated Shaq. Right. Or Shaq hated him. I can't remember the exact narrative. It was, like, but it was, it was similarly similarly exhausting right having to win uh and it just it just makes you i think appreciate how uh phil jackson must have been in terms of managing people because you know there's nothing 
basketball is a brilliant sport, but there's nothing like, you know, there's nothing genius schematically out of what Phil Jackson was doing. It was mostly managing humans. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Uh, that's a really good point. So there are a couple of big takeaways that I have from watching this. The first is that they're trying, the director and producers are trying to do something very hard, which is there are a lot of people watching this who did not follow Jordan at the time. So they're trying to tell the whole Jordan story while also being like, hey, the cool thing about this is we have all this footage from the last season. That's the whole idea. But they also have to tell the whole story because there's a lot of people that just don't know it. And that's crazy to think about. I wish they did more of just the behind the scenes stuff, right? Like I just want that footage because I've heard all a lot of this 95 to 99% of this other stuff before. They're, the two people that come out of this as kind of a shining light to me that I forgot about, the first is Phil Jackson. And everyone credits him for the triangle. Like everyone thinks that's his big innovation. And it really wasn't his innovation. It was Tex Winters. And it wasn't, I don't think it was so much the triangle as it was what you said, which is the, the, the social climate that he set up the ability to take Michael Jordan, who's got to be the hardest person on the planet to manage. Like, I don't care how hard Dennis Rodman might've been. Jordan's got to be way harder and get them all on the same page for multiple seasons in a row. is crazy to me. So Phil comes out as shining light. And I actually think Jordan does too, because he hated everybody. But in listening to these interviews, it's like, Oh, he's being real. And you always felt like there was this facade of cool, over the top of him at all times when he was playing. And here he just kind of, he's still cool, but he takes it off to a large extent. And I think one of the craziest things is this guy probably lost as much money gambling as most really successful pro athletes make in a career. And he's still loaded. That's the, that's the insane thing. Like it, no wonder people were scared by his gambling because they'd never seen money like this before. And he's just literally throwing it out there to feed the fact that he loves competition and it never affected him financially. It also, there's some, you know, some stories out there that it was hard to collect on him, but like, I, I don't know, man, it was just, it really shines through that Michael Jordan is like the yeah. coolest dude ever. Could have picked up on video games. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it just, I, I don't get, by the way, like, can, I'm just going to throw this out here. I don't get the whole, hi, he really liked competition. Like, if you're getting your ass kicked gambling that much, right? Like, does he just like the fact that he could lose? I, I think he really cause, enjoyed – I think he really enjoyed making other people squirm. No. And he was so dominant on the basketball floor. Like, he was so much better than everybody. That's the other thing. The dude was gambling all the time, all day, playing golf, and then would come out and just kick everybody's ass on the basketball court. Yeah. So like this was a way for him to feel, uh, you know, that competitive, like I might lose and this amount of money is making this other person terrified. And I think that just like that drove him. Mm -hmm. So um, Bruce is going to hop on here in a second, but you asked a really good question, which is what football player could you do a documentary like this on? And my immediate response is Brady, but that's probably me limiting myself a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, 100%. I, you know, the Brady-Belichick relationship is clearly the one here. But that one's easy. I think that we're going to be watching Brady-Belichick documentaries until our kids are in college, right? Mm -hmm. The Or longer. Um, so, to me, I don't know. a long if, time for me. Oh, uh, yeah. The, um, they're, they're not even a twinkle in your eye at this point. But the, 
the um but the the one that's like i feel like is maybe a little bit less like i really want to see one on the Niners with Montana and Young. And I know we've had, Mon- you know, Steve Young's a football life. Montana's a football life. We've had Joe, uh, Steve, uh, not Steve Walsh, uh, Bill Walsh's. But I think there's so much more there, there. I wonder, though, if we if we have access to that information. Yeah, I don't know if there's enough, like, salaciousness there. Because I yeah. even think they're playing up the, the Jordan gambling thing a little bit here to make it yeah. a little edgier. Yeah. Bruce is here, and this is. I would want to ask Bruce this question. So, what's up, guys? What's happening, man? We're talking last did, did dance. I just, did I just bombard the pod? Like, no, did I just slide no, in man. here without. This is the whole idea. We wanted you to just jump in and uh, start the conversation. But we were how, talking. We were talking how, last dance. Have you been how's watching? The, how's the audio? Because I kind of I hooked up my mic right here. You knew. See, I got Sound the great. blue Yeti going. So look at that. We are the Yeti. No, you look great sound great you're in good shape have you been watching the last dance oh you know what i have been and last night i started it i'm like a half hour in i'm getting all fired up i mean i'm loving the nike shot and how jordan signed with nike (laughs) and all that yeah and then my wife walks in and wants to watch a movie oh man I had to go the other route. I had to put the movie on so i'm looking forward to finishing tonight so no jordan i didn't finish it last night and i just I get fired up, man. I I just I love Jordan. Always have. I mean, basketball was my first true love. So, if I was six six, man, I would have stuck with uh, with hoops for sure. Same. <laughs> I I no one really. My parents were super supportive, so they were never like, "Hey, you're going to be maybe six feet if you're lucky." <laughs> so they just kind of let me ride with it, and then I I kind of came to the realization. But I was the same way. I was like a Jordan junkie. I used to record. I had like old VHS tapes where I've like scribbled on like '97 Game One Jazz or whatever. Oh man! Um, but so is there? Because I could see the answer to this question being no. There just isn't. Is there a football player slash story that could be this type of documentary? Like everyone stops, everyone watches five straight weeks. It's 10 episodes long. It's like an event. Do you think there's a story out there, a player out there? I think there is. I mean, I I think because we're so intrigued, not only is, um, you know, for what our job entails, but as a fan base, right? I mean, we want to see, we want to go behind the scenes of these unbelievable athletes and, you know, NBA, NFL, major league baseball, like it really doesn't matter. So if you told me, you know, uh, major league was coming out on a story with uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire during their time with the home run derby or the home run. Uh, yeah. The home uh, run chase, but they yeah. d- didn't, they do. I mean, they did like a 30 for 30 on that. Yeah. Right. What, and, what could you make 10 ep- like, Somebody, somebody in the comment section, I think, has a really good one, which is Michael Vick. Yeah, because cool. Michael Vick had, you know, he had the stardom. He's the first ever quarterback to win a playoff game in Lambeau Field as a visitor. Yeah, the you know, dog What's- fighting, two years in prison. The the whole 2007, Bruce, you probably remember this. Uh, uh, who's the Louisville coach? Bobby Petrino. He goes to Atlanta, then Vick right. goes to prison. He, he lasts 12 games. He gets a job at Arkansas. He's like, I'm out of here, right? And then – That would be good. And then uh, Vic, goes to, Vic goes to Philadelphia, backs up Michael Vick one – or not, uh, backs up uh, McNabb one year, takes over for Kevin Cobb, right, has one of the best seasons we've seen in a long time. 
Like you get uh, so many person, you get Andy Reid, and then you get, you, and then he signs another hundred million dollar deal, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. So and then go he goes for- and he's a backup for Pittsburgh. He's a backup for the Jets. He's a backup for you know, it, it, it's kind of compelling. So I was with him in Pittsburgh. You know, we we signed him because because I was hurt. So actually, you know, I'm I'm better than Vic in a sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You opened up a job for him. Yeah. Exactly. But. I mean, you're right from his his story, man, from being the first overall pick, fighting that adversity, going to prison, and then coming back, though, and then earning that, not only to get a job, to get another opportunity, but to earn that other contract. And I was with him in Pittsburgh, and it's funny, man, like, what a good dude. And I was out to dinner one night. We're playing in Kansas City, so you'll like this, Eric, and I don't know if it was a preseason or regular season, but I'm hurt. Ben's hurt. Michael Vick's hurt. And we all go out to to dinner and we're sitting there and I'm telling you what, like, that's when I realized like how big of a superstar he is and, you know, Ben is and you're sitting there and you can't even have a couple minutes to talk because nonstop everyone wants to come over to the table and, and, you know, they handled it like professionals, but uh, Vic is a great one. I, I think of, I mean, I think, don't you think Tom Brady eventually, would be at that point. I think of old school quarterbacks. I mean, would we, and it's, it's easy for me to say, cause I love the stuff on like Marino, Elway, yeah. Montana. Um, so I would sit for 10 episodes and, and tune in. Uh, but this Jordan stuff's awesome, man. I mean, I just, I love seeing behind the scenes and I love seeing the guy's mentality. Dude, he's an animal, like an absolute animal. And I, that's, so that's the part about Brady. There's a part of me that thinks, that maybe there isn't anyone because the com- the combination of superstar, but also like unknowns. So so Jordan was so good at just playing basketball and being like this stone cold killer all the time. That the idea that you would have this behind the scenes footage is like crazy. With Brady, I feel like he's doing a much better job and actually a concerted effort to show you some of the behind the scenes stuff where maybe it's not as compelling to do a 10 part documentary on a guy where he has given you home videos, you know, already he's he's already done this like little doc, you know, this mini doc. But if you have the Belichick element to me, that's what makes it so interesting because Belichick is this like lockbox of mystery. Well, and then then we would see behind the scenes of how this really, how they really parted ways. Right. I mean, we don't know the truth of the truth, like 10 years, 20 years down the road when Brady and Belichick all sit back and they take an interview for this documentary and Robert Kraft does and they say, well, listen, this is what happened the last few years. This was the tug between the Jimmy G trade and the yeah. Tom Brady, uh, you know, going another route. I mean, I need I need someone hand I need a director handing Belichick an iPad with like a Brady comment on it and him <laughs> laughing at it. I mean, that would be. That would be incredible. But Belichick, Belichick, even I think his career is even more vast than that because he was the coach of the Cleveland Browns, right? Well, he was coach of the New York Giants, right? They won two Super Bowls. He was like one of the two men carried off the field. He goes to Cleveland. He cuts Bernie Kosar. The whole town hates him. Then the Browns move to Baltimore while he's the coach, right? Gets fired, you know. Then he's the coach of the Jets twice without coaching a game. (laughs) <laughs> and then yeah and then he go. you know there's so much belichick pre-patriots is an hilarious story and then you get to patriots and then you have spygate you have spygate 
You have Deflategate. You have whatever the hell is going on right now with Brady. Mm-hmm. I and Belichick whatever happens can, from now on. Right. And, and like, it, it, it's such an interesting – I think – I mean, Brady obviously is a great piece to talk about here. And, and certainly, like, Deflategate and everything was more on his shoulders and all that kind of stuff. But Belichick as a, as a per, like as a evolution for him – Unbelievable. I, I think. And that's and that's the other thing about this doc is there are so many other characters in it. Like I would, you know, I think I would like to hear more about Phil Jackson. I would like to hear more about Pippen, Rodman. A lot of those those guys that he was playing yeah. against were interesting. Barkley's fascinating. Like I actually think the documentary is too short. I think you could have done like twenty episodes, honestly, and it would be like enthralling. Um, I want another Vic story though, because Vic is mythical in the same way that Jordan is from an athletic perspective. Like for me growing up, Michael Vick was a, was a cheat code, right? Yeah. And by the time he got to Pittsburgh, that had clearly worn off a little, like a lot, right? right? Was there, was he still just kind of a freak or? Well, and, and that's the thing, right? Because when you sign Michael Vick, I mean, you think you think of the players on the roster that were legit like kids, like eight, ten years old when Vic was in his prime time, and they had the Vic jerseys and they were tr- pretend to be Michael Vic in the backyard. So you know when, when Vic initially got signed, and, and I'm at fault at this. You know you're you're looking up, you're looking at him up and down, and you're watching him in practice, and you're like, wow, like you know to me being that close, you're like, you know you start analyzing, you're like, okay man, he's, he's not as tall, you know? I mean, I knew he wasn't a tall guy, but you're like, wow, he's, he's pretty short. And then it is, you know, the ball definitely jumped out of his hand. I mean, it's a flick of the wrist. The way he slings it is, is a beautiful thing to watch. Um, In his athleticism, it wasn't all there when he was in Pittsburgh. You know, you could tell that. I think we were all watching him every practice, wanting to see the old Michael Vick. But he still had enough. When he played, he was smooth enough to know how to navigate the pocket and take off. A lot about a lot of the quarterbacks, you know, when you see them have good runs, it's just knowing when to run and, and run at the right time. And and that's where Vic, you know, at the stage he was in Pittsburgh, he still had enough juice in him to make plays. But he wasn't. It's you know, the clip I have of Michael Vick in my head is when he was with Atlanta playing the Vikings and he's yeah. splitting every defender and yeah. you know, defenders are running into each other. I mean. Uh, but I'll tell you what, when, when I got to know uh, him a little bit, it just, you, I was just, I don't know. I, I don't want to say like, I was just, uh, it was cool to know him and just, I was really, I, I was happy for him of how he handled that stuff and came out of it because he really did seem like a good hearted dude to where you're like, wow, the, you know, the stuff you hear about him, you know, all the things that have went on and him being in prison and them coming back. You know, then getting a chance for me to to know him and and have dinner with him and be in the same locker room and meeting rooms, I was just I was impressed with that story. So I think that is definitely a documentary that people would. It, it's behind the scenes, right? But not only behind the scenes, but the adversities that that guys have to handle and break through. I mean, you guys talked about Belichick in his early years. Those are the intriguing times because we're all there. We're all striving for something. And no one knows about the shit we hit right now, but don't know who we are when we get there and stuff. And it's like, I love the the adversity. I'm always an underdog, you know, fan. So uh, yeah. I love those kind of stories. 
would be sweet. I, Vic is awesome, man. I just I remember <laughs> playing endless games of Madden with with Michael Vick and him being unstoppable. Um, I wanted let's let's start talking about a guy that's in the news now, uh, Andy Dalton, because I see Andy Dalton get signed by the Cowboys. The Cowboys were not a team that I had thought of in large part because well they they have a really good quarterback, but I think we've gotten to the point and you would probably agree with this, that a lot of teams are not valuing the backup quarterback enough. And this is, to me, like this really shrewd move where, hey, the backup quarterback matters. Why would we not spend a few million dollars on having one that's probably an average NFL starter anyways? Yeah. I mean, I was surprised at the signing too, George. I didn't think the Cowboys weren't running. And, you know, and honestly, too, I mean, Andy, to me, I was with Andy, so I think highly of him. I, you know, he's a smart quarterback. He understands the game. He's accurate. He's a good passer. Um, but it's it's does he have that next level in him? You know, is he a top ten guy? Can he be a top ten guy, a top six guy in a season? Um, we saw a little bit in 2015, and then he broke his thumb. You know, and so it's intriguing to me, man, that like if something were to happen to Dak. I think he would he would definitely execute the offense. I think he would be more than able and capable to to play well. And and it almost brings in that sense of Jerry Jones, man. What like what are you doing? Is this something that you're not going to be shy that if if you don't get what you want out of Dak this year, and you don't want to play pay the big money that you'll you'll settle with for Andy and you'll pay him. 15 to 17 million a year instead of 35 million a year. So it was kind of intriguing to me. Um, I, I don't think Andy's the athlete Dak is. No. Uh, and of course, Dak has a lot of good football left in him. But um, I like the signing for, like you pointed out, I mean, you need a good backup quarterback and their insurance policies, right? And people pay good money to have good insurance policies on their house, on their cars. You know what I mean? So on their boats. Uh, like probably Chris, Chris and all his yachts yeah. that he, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like honestly, some teams care more about their backup running back than their backup quarterback. Well, and we were talking, you know, this was a discussion that was had somewhere. I, uh, I would take a good backup quarterback over a lot of starting positions. I would take one over a nose tackle. I would take one over a guard, uh, mo- you know, third linebacker on my team's not as valuable as a backup quarterback. Like you, and then the other thing, like what you just talked about, this is an important point. Dak Prescott is worth a big contract as an NFL starting quarterback. He's not worth the biggest one. And we've seen, and, and now it blew up in his face, but we've seen, you know, the Denver Broncos after winning a Super Bowl had a price that they were paid Brock Osweiler. And Houston exceeded it. And they said, don't let the door hit you. Right. And it was a smart move for them. You know, they didn't come back with anything, you know, promising after him but if you're Dallas you're thinking to yourself like there's a price to pay right Dak has had two good years two so-so years like if they pay him everything it might not be exactly what it's worth we've seen that with Jared Goff we've seen that with a number of quarterbacks that have gotten top dollar even though it's not necessarily true that they're worth it I mean so okay this is the way I think of it because they they over their last four full seasons Bruce have been very similar from a grading perspective. They've had two good top 15 seasons and they've had two meh seasons. Now the narrative around Dak is way rosier than that of Dalton in large part because of that last season. 
But, like, Dalton certainly hasn't had a nice infrastructure. The Cowboys have a ton of weapons. Is it, is it crazy to me to say that they're the one difference between the two of them from a production standpoint is that with Dak, I feel confident that he could win a big game or more confident that he could win, win a big game and that he adds an element of I'm not as sure yet because he's a little younger. But other than that, like Dalton's accuracy, you know, all the, he's very accurate. Right, like yeah. all of those things make him a fairly comparable quarterback. Because Dak, Dak's not a top five guy, is he? No, no, he's not. And, and that's why when I saw this signing, I'm thinking, you know, Andy's a better pure passer than Dak is. You know, and, and I think it's the unknown, George. Like you're pointing out that that's what makes it. Oh, it's it's Dak's team. But to me, in this league, and Andy's still a young guy. I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know now. Like I don't know Dak in the in the locker room like I know Andy. And from what, from what I've heard about Dak, I mean Dak has that mentality. He's a workhorse. He loves it. And I think that's the difference maker. Honestly, I think that's the difference between him and Andy. I think Andy will put enough work in to be prepared and play well and keep his body in shape. Dak will put over the top work in, mm-hmm. um, and teammates see that. Guys see that. So. When you miss that pass downfield, it's inaccurate. You don't even blink an eye with Dak because you're like, this dude's a warrior. I, you know, I'm not worried about that. And and that's why when we go through, and we like just grade these guys and, and just project, you know, uh, um, on these young quarterbacks. I'm more intrigued with their mentality and fighting adversity and handling that because at the end of the day, no one's going to play perfect. But who's that? Who has that dog in them that yeah. at the end of the day can win games? And I think. You know, we're look when you're looking at the Cowboys. I think that Dak has some of that in him, and, and you point out like he can win the big game. And and I think Dak's at a similar point that Andy was in his career in Cincy, right? I mean, everyone was like, "Can Andy win a playoff game?" Andy got to Cincy. Cincinnati had hadn't been to the playoffs for a while. He went, right. you know, both years I was there. He's gone five straight years, you know, at one point, and so. I mean, he had an impressive run that point, but then it gets old. Then it's like, give me more, give me more. And I think that's where Dak is. You, Dak has to give us more, you know, especially he's going to get paid a big contract. And I think that's what Cowboys, Cowboy fans want to see. Did So Eric and I talked a lot about Dak last year versus years before. Was that better scheme, Kellen Moore, healthy receivers, or was there an element of Dak has really improved as a thrower last year? Because it seemed to me like the comfort level on intermediate throws in particular, on reading things a little more quickly there, he had a lot of games where his time to throw was a lot lower than it's been in the past. He had always been in the two nine range and had a lot of games where he was more in the two fives, you know, kind of a Brady breeze type of number. Did you see real improvements last year with Dak? I think Dak last year was a mix of um, him getting better, you know, in his career, but also Kellen Moore switching things up, having good shifts and motions, utilizing the play action pass game. And that helped him. And that, that helped Dak take the next step uh, in his career. I think Dak can continue to get better. I don't think Dak, you know, sometimes when I watch him, he's not a, great anticipatory thrower he can and but he could get better at times sometimes he kind of waits a tad he's a tad late on some throws and I saw that kind of coming to play this past year there were some slipped routes you know where guys fall there was tip balls and passes 
Um, but I also think it's some of the inaccuracies that it might be you need to hit this guy on the upfield number and boom, he splits the cover two defense and scores a touchdown or it's right on the back shoulder, you know, on a big in route, it was a completed pass. It was a first down, but he didn't get to run after catch. I think that's the stuff I want to look uh, more in depth of Dak is where is he hitting these passes? Is he giving his opportunity you know, receivers opportunities after the catch and just taking his game to the next level. And I think that's what we look at. If we're going to talk about guys in the top 10, top five, six quarterbacks that you have to do. Well, and don't you think that that's some of the, you know, when we look at some of the players in the current draft, you look at Jalen Hurts, like that was the knock on him, right? Is that he can execute. Obviously when he decides to throw the football somewhere, he's pretty accurate and the offense is pretty efficient when you put him in that kind of spot, but the anticipatory throws, the, the timing, all that kind of stuff is just a little off. And, you know, if, if we're worried about that in a draft pick, are somebody who's been in the league for four years, is that just, you know, reaffirmed? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Cause that, that, that is our concerns with uh, Jalen hurts. Now. I mean, he is, um, a guy that doesn't anticipate, but he can make plays. He's athletic to, to buy time. Um, and, and you're right. If you've been in the league this long and you're still kind of lacking on it, look guys, that's why I'm big on you're either instinctual or you're not. And when I did some studying on Tua and, and Burrow and Herbert and love, I mean, that's where, that's where the difference is. Tua's instinctual Burrow's instinctual. Then you get to Herbert and love and, and the other guys and it's, eh, and you either have it or you don't. I believe that. So I don't think Dak and Jalen Hurts are never going to be just these great anticipatory type throwers. But, you know, they could buy themselves some more time. They understand what they could get away with. A lot of Jalen Hurts' throws in college, he knew, look, I'm not getting any pressure anytime soon. I can hold it an extra hitch. I just want to make sure I complete that pass. I did it at Toledo a lot because – College protection is different than the NFL. Now in the NFL, I was good enough that I had anticipate. I could anticipate. I had to anticipate. I didn't have the strongest arm, uh, but I had enough arm, and I was athletic enough. But I, a- I also understood. That's why when I see guys like Burrow, that was a basketball player, that was a point guard, I really like that, and I think it really translates to on the field. It's how you see the game. It's how you can react. And I was watching a bunch of plays on on Love today on Jordan Lovin and I feel like a lot of times I'm questioning when he makes a decision to throw and something's not right I don't think he can process that and and stop himself and check it down or go to the next read and that's something that's that's hard to learn and it's it's almost it's either comes natural or it doesn't well it puts so much pressure on the coach right it puts so much pressure on the play caller because you need it to be open and you need it to be pretty sustainable, right? And you need it to be something that the quarterback doesn't have to improvise too much from. And I don't know if there are that many, I'm I'm writing about this currently. I don't think there are that many coaches in the NFL that can do that. Right. And, you know, Shanahan, maybe Reed, um, just a few others, probably McDaniel, maybe I, but the, the hard part is it puts so much pressure on the coach. And I think sometimes coaches like that, right? Coaches that have, you know, a little bit of, um, you know, competitiveness to them, you know, like that challenge, but ultimately a lot fail at it. And, and then that's why you see quarterbacks who can have, 
you know, pretty good seasons for a time, but then get exposed uh, when, you know, situations aren't perfect. Hopefully Dallas is one of those situations where Dak or, or Andy can continue to succeed uh, despite some of those deficiencies, but you know, who knows? Well, that, so, okay. So you brought up two things uh, that, that I thought are super interesting. The first is the instinct part. And Eric and I spend a ton of time talking about, okay, what, what are, what are mathematical ways to, you know, to do things that people talk about all the time figuratively, right? I think that's like, that's, that's where the, the, the two sides meet, right? Someone talks about something from a football perspective, and then you can also talk about it mathematically. Instincts seem to be one of those ones where you go, you know what? There's just no way that this can ever show up. You know, the date, you can never model this. And I disagree. And I'm curious your thoughts on this, Bruce. So like, if I'm saying, if someone says to me, what data point represents a guy that has great instincts? I think most people would go, oh, let's look at what he does under pressure. You know, does he make plays under pressure? And that's actually something that's pretty um, unstable from season to season. And I might throw it the other way and say, no, a guy that's really instinctual is going to kill people from the clean pocket. He's going to limit negatively graded throws. He's going to be the guy, because he's instinctual, that makes more smart decisions. And that's going to show up even from a clean pocket, even on quick throws, because so much of it happens before the snap and in the couple seconds after the snap. Yeah, I mean, and a lot is great. You know, I like to look at guys, how they operate from a clean pocket, because you said it, that's the most stable. If you're not making plays from a clean pocket, and that's why with these college guys, one of the stats and filters I used that I had to dig into was how do these guys play in a clean pocket uh, routes that the separation, the receiver separation was either open, uh, closing, or he had a step. So basically it's an open wide receiver. Um, and the throw is 10, 19 yards downfield because I feel like that's an NFL type throw. And when you look at the un, the inaccurate, uncatchable throws, you know, of course, Burrow went through the least amount of them at like 4.7%. And then Jalen Hurts was second at like five something percent. And then down the line was like Love at like 23%. Herbert was in the 20%. So to me, that was like a stat that stood out because I'm like, okay, these guys are in a clean pocket. Uh, the receiver's open, but they're still throwing an uncatchable, inaccurate pass. And I was like, man, that's kind of like probably my career, right? That's all I threw is <laughs> uncatchable, inaccurate <laughs> passes. Uh, so that was that was one thing that I really uh, looked at and kind of with these guys coming out that that intrigued me, because if you can't make the plays when things are stable, then it's it's tough to do it when when the pressure does happen. Yeah, there's you- almost no repeatability, right, in terms of being able to, you know, uh, it, it's sort of um, what is the. Uh, what's the statement it's sort of like once you've mastered you only you you can only break the rules after you've mastered them so you know when you're a quarterback unless you've been able to hit open receivers in a stable environment can you be you know re- uh, basically asked to repeatedly hit them in a crappy environment you see that with Mahomes right Mahomes he's mastered the clean pocket he had like 60 touchdown passes from a clean pocket in his career and, and so the off off schedule stuff, okay, I'm going to allow you to sort of be an artist there, right? But most most people can't even deal with, you know, with the paintbrush at this point. Well, and, and here's what I think of, right? Because I think it comes down to poise. And think about it. Why do guys, you know, um, 
make plays maybe better under pressure or when pressure's around because they're not supposed to, right? You know, you have a blitz blitzer coming to your, you know, about to hit your face or you're screaming outside the pocket and someone's dragging your jersey and you have to make a throw. You're not supposed to be able to make that throw. So the pressure's off. There's no pressure on you because you shouldn't be able to make that throw. So I think it comes down to being able to have poise and composure so, you know, why do guys play better when you hear the stories of a guy played with a broken left hand and, and a guy played with a dislocated left shoulder and or a, a torn up knee and because the pressure's off them, right? Because you shouldn't play good with a torn ACL or uh, it happened to me in college. I played the rest of the MAC championship game with a broken right hand, my throwing hand. And to me, pressure was off of me because I shouldn't be able to throw this is my right hand I just broke my right hand right so the defense thinks we're going to stop the run well the passes I did have to make they were more open I just had to just lay the ball downfield so I look at that as like when it's a clean pocket and the guys are open there's more pressure on you mentally because you have to hit that throw and that's why I look at these guys and it tells me what kind of poise they have um, because when, you know, when the blitz happens or pressures around you or you're playing injured, injured. Yeah. People don't think you should play good because you have those other, yeah. uh, things inhibiting you. But when things are clean around you, you need to make the play. And sometimes that's when guys don't have the poise and composure to get through the reads and just make easy play. It's so interesting that you talk about that. Cause I, I always remember, you know, when I played, it was similar in the sense that it was so much easier for me to catch a pass if somebody was dragged on top of me or if somebody was hitting me or it was like a diving play. The hardest ones were ones right in your, in your, you know, in your hands. But it was just because I, you know, I think that my expectation was always lower on the, you know, the former passes, right, where, you know, the, our rates are so much different, right? It, it's actually, it takes a little bit of skill to do something that's expected of everybody, you know, and if you can't do that, then, you know, when the bullets are firing, you don't have that sort of like, you know, it, it takes some of the mental part out of the game, but it doesn't take the physical part. And we're, you know, when we judge clean pocket passing, in many ways, we're judging the physical ability of a player to hit open players. So that would that would lead me to think, OK, maybe we've really undervalued Jalen Hurts because, yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, maybe he's not an anticipatory thrower, but his instincts are a little bit better than we think. And his poise is a little bit better than we think. Is that the biggest is, is poison instinct. The biggest thing that you, that, that separates Tua Burrow and then Herbert and love, or is there something else that, that we're also just a massive difference between the two? Well, I think, um, I, you know, I think the, the poison instincts for sure. I mean, <clears throat> you talk about, the accuracy as well, right? Because Burrow and Tua, very good base about him, very good delivery. Tua really impressed me. When I went back and was studying him more so the last few weeks, really good compact delivery and base and very, very quick twitch. And I think that's what separates Burrow and Tua from the rest of the crowd. And when you when you have the physical abilities, but you also have the poise, composure, and the mental like uh, uh, side of things. And, you know, you, you have the it factor to be a temperature changer in a locker room. I just don't think, you know, when you look at the other guys that 
and look, we all grow in our career at different times. You know, when I got drafted in the NFL as a six rounder and I started 11 games as a rookie, it was hard to go into that huddle and locker room and demand stuff as if I was a veteran. But now looking back at it, I wish I would have because I learned at that time, no matter your age, no matter, uh, you know, your year and years in the league or whatnot, playing the quarterback position, you're looked at as a leader no matter what. You know, and guys, when when the whistle blows and you're in between the white lines and you're in the huddle, even the best of them, best of them, you know, like future Hall of Famers or Hall of Famers now, the way they look at you in the huddle, man, it's different. It, they look at you like, uh, what is that again? What, what do I what do, what do I have? Hey, what do I have on? You know, it's yeah, yeah. different, man, and it's it's crazy. So I wish I could go back in time and tell young little Brucey, like, hey, man, nut up, be confident out there because no one else gives a shit. They give a shit if you make plays. And I was making plays in the preseason. Then when the season came, it came to that poison composure that I felt like it's the NFL. Should I? I'm from Toledo. I'm a small-town kid from Pittsburgh. You know, like, should I be making these throws? Like, you know, it's the NFL. I shouldn't be balling out in the Superdome against Drew Brees and Reggie Bush on the other sideline. You know, so then you let the mental things get to you. Um, so I really look at the guys that have been through some things and that's Jalen Hurts. He's been through adversity. Joe Burrow had to transfer. He's been through adversity. Um, Tua, he's been through adversity with injuries and those things intrigue me because I know they have the mental toughness to withstand the NFL because a lot of times and most of the time things aren't right. Uh, but it's who can win and overcome those negatives, uh, to help your team take that next step. You're, you're telling me that Utah state, because it seems to me like, and we heard this with Josh Allen in Wyoming too, um, but it, everyone seems to think that Utah State was playing a lot of really good competition with no receivers. Like, uh, you know, that, that's how it always is. Well, I, if you put him on Oklahoma, he'd be great. And I hate that because that's not the case. You don't just go and go into a bigger situation where the lights are brighter and automatically perform better because the players around you are better. Utah State, the teams they were playing sucked. And if you're a great player, you beat those teams, right? Like that's that's just how it works. And to automatically say Jordan Love would have been amazing at Oklahoma to me is ridiculous because you make an accurate pass at Utah State, then you should be able to make it at Oklahoma. But he didn't make accurate throws at Utah State at a high rate. So, well, And here's the thing. Bruce, you know this better than anybody. Football is a constant – state of change in the nfl right so people make excuse like people make excuses about his infrastructure his supporting cast all that kind of stuff and they act like those things aren't going to change at the nfl level right Mm -hmm. like if you can't hit accurate passes at the college level when things are changing around you you can't do it at the nfl level can you no and that's a good point because stuff changes more so in the nfl i mean look at you know, college, you're together longer, you know, you build more of a rapport and, and guys are free agents, you know, on draft. I mean, there, there's so much different there's, coaches get head coaching jobs, leave you like right. your offensive coordinator leaves you. Right. One of, one of the main things I noticed on Jordan Love today, I was studying some film on him um, was he was just kind of making decisions pre-snap and he was throwing the more difficult throw, you know, if, say both sides are equal you, you have the same concept on both sides, same route. He was throwing it to the field. He was on the right hash. 
He was throwing a 12 to 14 yard stop route to the field on the left side of the field. He had the exact same route to the boundary uh, for a first down, and he chose to throw the the length of the field, you know, the the width of the field, a further throw, um, and he missed the throw. So, to me, I would say, you know, if I was in his in the coaching room, I'd say, look, I don't mind you making that decision because the guy was open and you know soft coverage, all that. But we got to hit the throw. Now, next time, if you want to make it easier on yourself, if everything's equal, let's work the boundary. It's an easier throw. You get the ball to your hand, you know, faster or even the same time, but it's an easier throw and you'll complete it. And it happened one too many times that he just was making the wrong decision. So to me, you know, if, I, if I'm the Green Bay Packers, I look at that stuff and I say, we could coach this up. We could get, get him playing more decisive, have more confidence in his trust where he's working on the field. Um, in that sense, and I talked about before about his reads of, you know, you know, he threw a couple picks, man, right to linebackers. And it was like, you know, and I look at a lot of times cause I'm not the tallest quarterback. So a lot of times I, I understand how guys get in your way and you can't see linebackers as easy as the eye in the sky looks, you know, we're yeah. watching on TV or where you're watching yeah. the coaches film. It looks clear as day. Like, how did you see that middle <laughs> linebacker? Well, you're not seeing it from the quarterback's view when there's, you know, three, six, five, 350 pound linemen, offense linemen, and then there's defense linemen in front of them that just clog it up. Well, there's a few throws that he had a perfect window, the line separated, he had pure vision right at the linebacker, um, and he threw the interception. The thing I take away from that is when he tries to throw the ball with touch and over linebackers, He's not understanding the touch. He's just taking something off the ball. You you still got to throw the ball, and you got to right. throw it to your guy. And he's just taking a little off it, and it's still it's not getting to his receiver. So he's almost just throwing a little lollipop, and that's why it's getting intercepted by the underneath coverage. Like some of these, they'd be tight window throws, but he just has to understand the trajectory of the throw is. Yes, it's got to be a two ball over that linebacker. You got to still put a little something on it, and he's taking too much off of it. So I, I think that's the inaccuracies we see from him that he's not really doing a good job of getting it over those linebackers. Or sometimes it's purely, hey, he made the decision. Now, can you tell yourself it's covered? Boom, come down to the check down. And I haven't seen him do that. Is are you buying that that Rodgers isn't really pissed off? That he isn't? Yeah, that he's reached out, that it, it's not, you know, that big of a deal. Well, I mean. Like, is this, I, do you I, see a, do you see a way that this season happens and it's not a big deal? Yeah. You know, because honestly, when, when they get together physically and they're at practice, not over these Zoom meetings and stuff like that, but they're together. Rodgers is going to see that he's light years above and beyond Jordan Love and that there's real no threat right now. So I think in a sense, it'll be reality. I mean, it happened to Big Ben and Mason Rudolph and all that. When, when you're around the guys and you understand, like, mentally they're still not there yet, they're young. Physically, they don't have the abilities I do. You know, the, the team around believes in Rodgers, believes in Big Ben. When those things start hitting the fan, you know, start you start understanding that or just seeing that in person, then it does. You do start being like, you know, this 
this isn't a big deal. It's a young young guy trying to groom groom his way to becoming a good quarterback. So I, I don't think it, it'll be an issue once once they get back together physically and they're practicing all that. I think Aaron Rodgers will notice, you know, how far and above uh, he is of Jordan Love right now. Here's a here's a question that I sort of have, and this is kind of it's it's kind of you know adjacent to sort of looking at the quarterbacks now, but it's also sort of bringing what is what's something that like, let's rewind back to 2006 what's one thing that you know now that you wish and it could be pff related or other what's one thing that you wish you knew then that you know now you know i put so much pressure on myself to be perfect and <clears throat> when i watch so much football now and I see the plays that are being made. I, I wish I would have had an understanding of at an early age, like, look, you're going to make mistakes, um, but to continue to have the mental toughness uh, to just keep playing and, and not to lose those confidence. And whether it's not that you lose confidence in yourself, but when you feel a coach lose confidence in you and look at you a certain way, it, it's hard to not lose confidence in yourself. Right. So I think looking back, like I was saying earlier, as far as um, getting in the huddle with Mike Allstott, Joey Galloway, Anthony Beck, you know, three core veterans on that offense side of football, Michael Clayton, Cadillac Williams. But then when, when, when you're under the lights and you're in the Superdome, my first start as a rookie week four or so, um, the way they look at you, your year in the league doesn't matter. Your pedigree doesn't matter. That, that play you made to play before, that key third down, that audible you just made, they trust those things. And I wish I would have understood that more to say, look, I have this opportunity. Like sometimes I've, I always played the fold of just being the nice guy, right? You know, like, ah, this is Chris Sims' team. He just got hurt. Oh, this is Andy Dalton's team. I'm signed to be a backup. Oh, this is Big Ben's team. I'm just the backup. Well, sometimes when I did have success, it was when o- in Oakland where I knew – is Jamarcus's team? No, nah, that doesn't give us the best shot. So, <laughs> you know, this could be my team, and I'm going to take – when I had that kind of fire and confidence, you could get the job done. So I think looking back at my rookie year, it's kind of like, look, you know, continue to have that confidence to understand it's a process. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to make some mistakes. But keep pushing forward. And I think um, in knowing that, look, even though you are a rookie – you got to act like a veteran. You got to just, you know, make your own way through this thing. And and I think we're seeing that more so now because rookies are coming in right away playing a lot more. What's um, I want to start doing uh, story time with uh, with Uncle Bruce. And you mentioned <laughs> uh, I want to make this a regular thing. Uh, you mentioned like the it. rookie the rookie year. So you walk into like the rookie, you know, as a rookie to the QB room. What are what are uh, what's your best rookie year story? You know, probably th- th- this one's pretty good. And um, <clears throat> so, sorry, my dog's going crazy upstairs. I decided to lean back for this story. I can't wait. I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, sit back. So, <laughs> so this is actually during training camp. I'm with Tampa Bay. You know, John Gruden. I'm playing well. I'm I'm just having fun. I'm grasping everything. Chris Sims is a starter. I I have Gruden coming up to me in stretch lines, telling me you're my guy. You're my guy, man. You should be the starter. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking Sims is your starter. How are you gonna you know tell this to me? 
But anyways, it comes to the point in training camp where it's rookie night and the rookies take out the veterans for dinner. And so the offensive line, the quarterbacks, the tight ends, um, we, we go to dinner. We go to, uh, was it Morton's? I think it was Morton's. We go to Morton's Steakhouse. And, um, you know, guys understand it's rookies. Uh, rookies are paying for it. Davin Joseph was our first rounder. Jeremy Truba was our second rounder. And Maurice Stovall was our third round offense wow. pick. And then I was a sixth rounder. So, you know, Maurice Stovall wasn't there. So it was Davin Joseph, Jeremy Truba, the first, second rounders. So guys are ordering up everything. Bottles of Louis the 13th, uh, shots of everything, appetizers, steaks, everything you can imagine. Bottles of wine, the most expensive stuff. They're ordering <laughs> it all. And the bill comes later in the night. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, okay, uh, I'm like, guys, you know, I was a six rounder. Like I, I'll put in what I can. <laughs> <laughs> so the bill comes, the bill is $33,000. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, dude, like I'll throw in like two grand, like, you know, two grand to me was like a ton of money. Yeah. And you know, at the time it was cool. Cause David Joseph and Jeremy Truba basically split it. Uh, but man, that's, I almost had a heart attack that night. Cause I'm thinking, I don't have enough money in my bank account. How is this going to happen? <laughs> uh, oh, but I, I, I took advantage of that when I became the veteran and guys would take us out the, yeah, you have to. So you, you're telling me, Bruce, if you would have been able to make money off your likeness in Toledo, it wouldn't have been as big of a deal, but now, <laughs> but, but back then you were just coming straight, coming out of college. Hey man, if if I got you know a little kickback on those jersey sales or the the commercials or posters, yeah, maybe I would have had some you know Ooh. accumulation in the bank. I could have paid for that thirty two thousand dollar dinner. <laughs> my my Toledo Rockets uh, memory is not very good. So Kareem Hunt, Bruce Gradkowski, who else is in that Toledo like group? I mean, it's so are, Lance are you Moore. on top currently? So Lance Moore, uh, okay. you remember Lance Nick Moore's Kayser, good. offensive lineman for the Patriots, John Greco, offensive lineman, uh, Barry Church, he's a Toledo guy, uh, Deontay Johnson now is a Toledo That's guy, right. um, Ola Adaney, we got some other guys out there, um, but yeah, so Chester Taylor, you remember Chester Taylor? Oh yeah, former Viking. Yeah. So there, there's some Toledo studs out there, my buddy well, Andrew You're the best Hawkins, quarterback, Hawk, it sounds like. Hawks killing it on the media side, but he's a he's a Lance Toledo Moore guy. had two career wins above replacement. I was looking at Toledo Rockets here. Lance Moore, Super Bowl winner, two wins above replacement. Bruce Gregkowski, the aforementioned 2006 Bucks. Chris Sims, 171 snaps, negative 2.284 war. Bruce comes in, 645 snaps, 0.16 positive war. You were a plus player at the NFL level, Bruce, as I imagine you know. We've got to get we've got to get Chris and uh, Bruce together. Are you uh, when you were doing that meal thing was uh, and you were gonna have to pay for it? Was Chris Sims ordering just everything under the sun? Was he was like, I'm gonna bankrupt this poor rookie QB so he doesn't take my job? Oh, absolutely. He was ordering <laughs> everything. You know what's funny is is when we were ordering, and I don't know how PG or X rated we could get on this as much as you want. We. Uh, we're ordering all this. I mean, everyone's ordering 
bottles of Louis the Thirteenth. Well, they fill up like a legit eight ounce glass of Louis, and you have a young rookie lineman, and we're all trying to make the team, right? But this dude was undrafted, most likely not making the team, and there's like an eight ounce glass of Louis sitting there, like a water glass, but filled with Louis, and everyone starts throwing down money. Boom, oh no! Boom. Hey. You know, so there's hundreds on the table and there's like a couple grand on the table and they're hyping up this whole lineman. They're like, if you drink it, you get all that money. If you oh, drink no. it, and, and everyone's going nuts. And he takes it and he chugs the whole thing and in one and one gulp takes that thing. And I'm like, we're all waiting for his reaction. He oh. took it down like a champ. He went out the rest of the night with a couple grand extra and just had fun and uh you know where it you're going funny, with that. It was, what's that? I said, yeah, I know, I know where I'm going with two grand. <laughs> well, and that's where he <laughs> went. So he had some money to spend. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, Bruce, this was, this was great, man. We've got to do this more. You're going to be uh, doing a lot more stuff with us this off season and next season. So I'm excited about that. Um, thank you for hopping on, brother. We appreciate it. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. You guys have a good day. You take care of the dog. All right. I know, man. I got to go, maybe go give him a treat or something like chill out, man. It's the quarantine. You got to, you know, stop barking so much. (laughs) Got to relax. Bruce Gradkowski. Thanks brother. Have a great one, man. All right. We'll see you guys. Bruce is the man. Uh, Bruce, Bruce career, one win above replacement, which I think puts him in a pretty good class of NFL players. Uh, Have you, have you ever been hazed like that? So, oh, you want my college football? No one ever asked me about my college football. I'm asking story. you right now. Okay. So, in my college town of Moorhead, Minnesota, which is Fargo-Moorhead, there are three colleges. There's the Division II College where I played, North Dakota State where uh, Trey Lance plays, and Concordia College, which is a Division three liberal arts school. Our So, we had two, meth- we had two things were, were, which I would consider hazing. One of them is we had to carry around a pink purse on campus for the first two weeks of school. What? So we all carried around every single freshman football player carried around a pink purse. (laughs) And if we were found without the pink purse, then, you know, there was some combination of being like strung up on the pole, you know, uh, singing your picture, singing your college fight song. No, we, 2004, you, you 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 might not know this, but my first ever cell phone I got as a graduation from high school gift. So wow. so there were no photos, you know, nothing yeah. like that. Facebook came out my freshman year. Um, the other hazing thing was you were supposed to go over to Concordia's campus, and they had these like weird beanies that they would wear, like it was somewhere between like a like an old school baseball cap and like a yarmulke mm-hmm. that they would like wear on their head. And so you were supposed to walk, go over there and steal one and bring it back. And I, just too lazy, I just started dating a girl who went to Concordia whose dad had one. And that's how I got out of it. That's incredible. Well, I mean, at least you didn't have to chug a, a glass of Louis Thirteenth. That sounds awful. I, uh, I actually was, I think, the only person on my college football team that didn't drink until – he was 21, so I was kind of a pariah for some in some cases for that. But it was it was a good time. 
I was I was a little nervous that you were gonna say something that was like actually bad hazing, but that's not bad at all. Well, the funniest thing, so our head coach got fired after my first year, and we had a new one, and they tried the same thing, and the new coach put an end to it. He was politically correct. He changed <laughs> he changed the the stretch called uh, the German March uh, to Tin Man. He was very politically correct. Yeah, that's not a great name for a stretch. I had a kid uh, when I was in school carry like I saw him carrying around like a boombox one day, and I was like, oh, this would be great. And I was like a really, you know, I was like a junior or something like that. And I was like, hey, man, do you want to walk around with me all day and like just blast beats in the background? And he's like, yeah, sure, man. He's like, you know, some young kid. So he walked around with me and a couple buddies for like the whole week blasting music. And I think back on, I was like, that was kind of a douchey thing to do. But, you know, here we are. Um, all right. So before we get out of here, a couple of things uh, to do. So the first thing is we had a... Uh, really good uh, question slash idea come in from uh, John Turek in the yep. uh, the podcast um, review. So what we're doing is write a five-star review, a question or a topic, um, and we'll pick the best one. We'll give you a, a, an, an Edge subscription or some merch uh, if that's what you want, and, uh, and we'll talk about it on the pod. So, John, we've got to get – maybe send us a DM, uh, and we'll get you – uh, get you taken care of. But here's what John says. Said, "Hey guys, love the pod. Uh, this could be a weird one, but I was wondering if you guys wanted to discuss uh, what the potential, what are the potential potholes in football in the football analytics world. I come from a more economic background, and there are con- countless examples of models or frameworks that we're supposed to be able to effortlessly guide policymakers." And while still very valuable, have sometimes missed the forest for the trees. I was wondering if this applies to where we are with football analytics. Uh, yes, we know there are key stats slash frameworks that are more stable, high EPA, yards per play, uh, CPOE, completion percentage over expectation. But where do you guys fear the model error creeps in most? Just because AX has been good, a good predictor of Y in the past doesn't mean it always will be. And I was wondering in which stats slash frameworks do you see potential issues or which are you guys working uh, or which are you guys working on that show potential promise? Sorry, I have a light in my eyes and I can't read right now. So um, anyways, love the pod. Stay safe. So that was from John. We appreciate it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's a great question. And I think, you know, he talks about economics and I've been doing a lot of thinking about um some of this and you know historically in econ you know there was so much consternation over decision making and how you know basically people are let are risk averse and you know there's the endowment effect and all that kind of stuff and and in recent years there's been a lot of reevaluation of that um because you know our time horizons they're not infinite but they're long. And so people are risk averse. And I think we've seen in, you know, in our society, probably why, um, you know, because people have skin in the game, right. And there's, and there's the probability of ruin. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking about, you know, we always think about, okay, don't run on first and 10, don't run on second and long. And I, and you know, I'm, I'm very much confident that that's still the right answer, but I'm wondering under what circumstances are we, 
too harsh? Are under what circumstances are we thinking too ergodically? Like where the time average and the space averages are the same? Are there lagging effects in for in decisions that happen later on in games? Um, are there lagging effects that that you know happen, say quarterback injuries or uh, you know so on and so forth? Are there things? Are, how do we define ruin? Is ruin just losing a game, losing a drive? Um, is it losing your quarterback to injury? All that kind of losing stuff. Losing your job, yeah. It, that That's really a thing that I'm thinking about and probably something where I think we're right still, but the degree to which we're right is probably a little bit lower than, than what we think. Yeah, that was going to be my similar to my answer for this, which is that I, I think the biggest issue that we have with a lot of the frameworks that we use is the certainty with which we reference them and the problem this is like i think a a real crux of the issue with any it's very prevalent in football but i think any situation where you have a mathematical framework and you have a we've always done it this way intuitive feeling type of framework is because you are trying to state how correct this way is over the other, you get way too carried away. And no one wants to hear anything where it's like, yeah, we think this is the way it is, but we're not sure. Because people immediately throw that out and they're like, oh, then we can't use it if we're not sure. And that to me is the big issue is that we have these frameworks and we use them as gospel. And I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. But what we're trying to say is, yeah, you should absolutely think this way now. That doesn't mean it can't change, but you should absolutely use this rule now. And we should still also be looking for ways to improve upon them. Um, and I think the time series component, you know, within games is very fascinating and one that would be an immediate, you know, yeah. I think, addition to the way that we analyze stuff. Non-stationarity is an important one, too. I mean, we talk about the value of certain positions, but it, it might be, I mean, there, there, it's certainly a situation where we could have, let's say in 20 years, the number of wide receivers that are good in the NFL be such that they don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, because running backs are running backs. I mean, it, it's only half of the equation, but one of the reasons running backs don't matter that much is because almost every single player who plays running back in the NFL is a terrific football player like of the highest caliber forever, you know? Mm -hmm. And so CJ Anderson off the street is still a good running back wide receiver. There's a more of them on the field at once and B it's not a position and this is changing, but not a position that has historically been where the best players play growing up. If that were to ever change, we would have to change. I think the tone a little bit because Mm -hmm. I think it would no longer be true that they don't matter. Yeah. That's a great point. Or that wide receivers matter the most. It's it's currently not only a very valuable position, but a scarce position. Running back is neither valuable nor scarce. That's the that's really the hard part about this. But that could change. That we've always sort of thought that that was going to be the case with quarterbacks, and that has not materialized because we've had a number of draft classes come up snake eyes over the past few years. But it could be the case that wide receiver may not be, uh, you know, uh, as disappointing as quarterback has been over the past, you know five years yeah and and and, you know to close this out a little bit the big one that everyone always gets indoctrinated with is running versus passing and if the fundamentals of what a run game is changes then our analysis of it will change as well 
And I think we're starting to see that a little bit, right? Like the Baltimore Ravens are certainly changing the way that the run game works for them fundamentally, obviously with the quarterback position being involved. And if that becomes ubiquitous, then we're going to have a totally different game of football. So that it's a really interesting question. The risk of overreacting to that is still higher than the risk of underreacting to it. Because for example, the 49ers are a team where if I like, I'm going to write about this today, but if you try to replicate their run game, you're going to fail. So, um, and the same thing with the Ravens too, you, but even schematically, if you try to play like the 49ers, you're going to lose. Uh, they just happen to have, you know, a good combination of a brilliant play caller and luck at this point. I agree. Um, Cool. So uh, that was from John. Reminder, if you want to get a free Edge subscription or some merch, uh, write a five-star review um, with a question or an idea or a take or a joke, whatever it is, we'll pick the best one and we'll talk about it. Um, We have some other stuff that we can push to Thursday because we have Bruce on for a little while today. Um, But a reminder, we were on the Ringer NFL show with Kevin Clark last week. That was a lot of fun. Um, You should go check that out. What we did is we went division by division and talked about which teams were good. And so maybe what we can do on Thursday, this Thursday is look at it um, more from a, you know, an odd standpoint, dive into those again. Um, Cause that was a really interesting conversation. And obviously those things are moving as we speak. Um, anything else, man, that you need to uh, fill me in on? No, things are good. Uh, enjoy, uh, you know, the content that we have this week. Um... And I ha- we'll see you all Thursday. I have a quick story for you. Oh, I have no. A quick, I have a quick Cincy Y on the road oh, story. Oh, no. So I'm, we don't I'm, even have Cincinnati Y memberships for the next few months. So I'm waiting desperately for the weather to warm so that I can just go outside. But at the moment, it's just not warm enough to, to rationalize going outside all the time. So I'm stuck in the apartment. I, it, it's a studio. And I've got like one yoga mat and it's super small. Anyways, I'm doing everything I can under the sun body weight wise because I don't have any weights to, to get a sweat in basically. And it will shock no one that like jumping is one of the best ways to like exercise. <laughs> People don't jump enough is one thing I will say. So uh, some of the workouts that I've been doing involve jumping and we're on the seventh floor. So there's someone right below us. So I'm very conscious to like try and land softly. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's only so much like one set 172 pounds can do to like not, you know, make noise. Softly specific, but yes. Uh, look, I'm very, I'm trying not to get uh, out of shape here. So I'm monitoring this closely. So uh, today, right before the podcast, I'm working out and I hear, I have headphones in, but I can hear someone like knocking on the roof below me, <laughs> telling me to like, shut up. <laughs> and uh, you'll be shocked to hear that. It you did didn't not, acquiesce. It did not keep me from finishing the workout. Now I, I was still conscious about trying to land softly. I really don't think I was being that much of a nuisance, but uh, that's what I'm dealing with right now. So, anyways that's, that's that's my great. story we'll be back on uh thursday uh thursday morning thank you guys for tuning in we appreciate it stay safe out there peace out